All right, well, you can open your Bibles to Matthew 4 as we get to resume our time in the Gospel of Matthew this week. And here we get to see the formal beginning to Christ's preaching ministry. The formal beginning to his stunning rise to fame. And we wonder, how did that happen? How did he rise from obscurity to such popularity in a, a little time? And some would suggest Jesus was merely in the right place at the right time. He was a skilled teacher. He gave people hope at a unique historical moment. People were desperate for any type of Messiah figure who could promise them deliverance from the Romans. We've heard many such stories before of people who basically accidentally rose to fame or success because they just happened to be in the right place at the right time. But the rise of Jesus was not happenstance, and it was not mere chance. Yes, to be sure, Jesus was in the right time, at the right place, rather, at the right time. He was so all the time, but far from being accidental, this was purposeful. God the Father was always directing the steps of Jesus, and he lived out God's eternal plan for him. Everything Jesus said and did was always in tune with his heavenly Father's will, and God's timetable was always on his mind. Jesus knew he had divine appointments to make all throughout his life. We've already been given some insight into God's timetable for the coming of the Messiah back in Matthew 1 and 2. Where, where Jesus shows up, he's born at precisely the moment God determined. God even ordered a, a star to appear in the east to some magi, signaling to them the time of the Messiah had come. Just like Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. And Jesus himself showed an uncanny awareness of God's ordering of his life, especially concerning his death. The time, the place, the manner of his death were not all by chance. They were ordained, divinely ordained. God had predetermined the hour of his sacrifice. And Jesus knew that hour. And that's why before that hour, he's always saying, my hour has not yet come. John 2, 4, Jesus said to her, my hour has not yet come. John 7, 8, he says, go up to the feast yourselves because my time has not yet fully come. John 7, 30, they were seeking to seize him. No man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John eight twenty, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And on it goes. And things make a little change the closer you get to the cross, though. In that Passion Week, suddenly the hour is near. Matthew 26, 18, the teacher says, my time is near. It's, it's coming. And then you get to the night before his death, the night of his arrest, and suddenly the hour is here. John 17, 1, Jesus prays to his father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. We know that God, the Father, was on his throne from the birth of Jesus to the death of Jesus. And there are no accidents here in the timeline of Christ's life. Rather, the God who works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11, was ordering the steps of the Messiah all the way through, according to his perfect plan. All of these things were happening for a reason. That is very much the case for the ending of his ministry on that cross. But it's also the case for the beginning of his ministry, and that's what we are going to witness in our passage today, Matthew 4, 12 through 17. 
Because here's where we see that the beginning, that the formal beginning to his preaching ministry, his rise to fame. This is where it really starts. It comes right after John the Baptist is in prison, where John's star falls and Christ's star rises. And we also see Jesus settling in Galilee, but neither the timing nor the place of Christ's ministry were accidental. Jesus began his ministry at precisely the right time and in precisely the right place per God's plan, per God's unshakable will. And that has big implications for Jesus and also for you and for me. So let's see what's going on here. We'll begin by reading this passage, Matthew 4, 12 through 17. You can listen along as I read it. Matthew 4, 12. Carrying on, it says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And from the text, I want you to see three marks of the divine ordering of Christ's ministry. This is a passage you ordinarily just read right through and think nothing of, but there's, there's something going on here. I want you to see three marks of the divine ordering of Christ's ministry. It starts with this. It started at just the right time. First, it started at just the right time. And look again at verse 12. It says, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, we've been now in Matthew for a couple of weeks, so I'll just quickly review what, what Jesus has been up to so far in Matthew's gospel. And back in chapter 3, we were introduced to John the Baptist. He's in the wilderness of Judea. He's preaching, baptizing. Jesus goes to John at the Jordan River to be baptized by him. And that marks the beginning of Christ's overall messianic ministry. The, the, the big picture starts when he's baptized by John. Immediately thereafter, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and he passes that test. That was Matthew 4, 1 through 11, and that's where we left off last time. Now, here we're in verse 12. It picks things back up with the arrest of John the Baptist, and Jesus moves into Galilee. But one thing you you probably don't know that's actually very helpful to gather is that in between verse 11 and verse 12 of Matthew 4, in between, about one year has taken place. We just jumped one year into the future. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't actually tell us very much of Christ's first year of ministry. They jump right to the arrest of John the Baptist, because that's when things really start heating up for Christ's ministry. But the Apostle John, in his gospel, he backfills us on what happened in that first year, at least a little bit, uh, a little bit of what was going on. Just to get started here, to give you a sense of the bigger picture of of Christ's ministry, I want to do that. I want to help you understand what was taking place. It's useful to to study the four Gospels and compare their timelines to get the bigger picture. So let's quickly do that. What was Jesus up to in his first year of ministry before he made this move to Galilee? 
Okay, so first he's baptized by John. Then he's tempted in the wilderness by the devil. Okay, after that, he comes back to John the Baptist. He's goes, he goes back to the Jordan River, not to be baptized again, but to start ministering. He starts making some of his own disciples. Now, John is not offended by this. John is not territorial. He knows that this is part of the plan. He's the forerunner. Jesus is the Messiah. This is how it's supposed to happen. Jesus must increase. John must decrease. And so John the Baptist testifies of Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Son of God. And because of that testimony, two of John's own disciples start following Jesus. And then a few more, and then a few more. And by the end of that first week, Jesus has a, a small rabble of disciples around him. Not the twelve, just a small gathering. We'll learn more about Christ's first disciples next week. But after that first week, they all leave and they go to Galilee. Not permanently, but they go to Galilee. And that makes sense. Jesus is from Galilee. And it could be they went because Jesus was invited to a wedding. And really their first stop is at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And that's where I'm sure you know, Jesus performs his first miracle. He turns water into wine, John 2. Now, after that, they pop over to a city, Capernaum, for a few days. Come back to Capernaum. But then they're off. And where they go, we don't know. They're they're off for about a year. All we know is in that first year, John tells us Jesus goes down to Jerusalem for the Passover. He cleanses the temple for the first time. Won't be the last time. And he speaks to a man named Nicodemus. Then Jesus goes back to Judea, kind of close to where John is, is ministering. And Jesus and John are both preaching, both making disciples, both baptizing near the Jordan. And so Jesus has a brief Judean ministry. But overall, you get the sense that his first year of ministry is pretty tame compared to years two and three. In the first year, we don't see Jesus preaching to massive crowds. We don't see him healing entire villages. He seems to be spending his time with a few disciples and making a few disciples, preparing them for what's about to come. But things are about to dramatically change. In a very short while, Jesus is going to unleash the the full force of his preaching and healing ministry. Soon, he's not going to be able to go anywhere without massive crowds flocking to him everywhere he goes. It's kind of like the Beatles. Before 1963. Before 1963, they were just a little rock and roll band. No one had heard of them. They played bars and nightclubs and not a big deal. But after a few TV appearances, what was called Beatlemania began. And after that, they could not go anywhere in public without being mobbed. And that's what's going to happen to Jesus after he starts this Galilean ministry. It's all going to change at this point. And according to Matthew 4.12, our passage This is when it's going to begin. The time is now for that very public ministry to begin. The time for Jesus to be properly introduced to the world has come. And why the change? What's marked this change? Well, it's the arrest of John the Baptist, verse 12. That was the catalyst for Jesus to move north. This is where Matthew, Mark, and Luke and their gospels all They all resume their record of the ministry of Jesus. They basically jump from the baptism of Jesus to to the Jesus mania period. Because this is where things get pretty exciting. But this arrest of John the Baptist, what's this all about? 
We'll learn the full story of John's arrest and execution later in Matthew 14. But in short, John the Baptist was arrested because he was righteous and the ruler of the land, Herod, was not. Herod Antipas was one of the sons of Herod the Great. He's a tetrarch over the regions of Galilee and Perea. And he was full of wickedness, which included, just out in the open, taking his brother's wife to be his own, who, by the way, was also his niece. And John the Baptist was not quiet about this. He openly condemned and rebuked Herod for his unrighteousness. And, and what do you know? Herod didn't like that. And he wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the crowds because John was very popular and regarded as a prophet by all the people. So he settled for having John bound and imprisoned in a fortress. Now, our passage here is not about John the Baptist. We'll save that for Matthew 14. But I think it's worthwhile just to pause and admire and praise God for the courage of John the Baptist. Because even though he was living in a culture of outer darkness, he was not afraid. He was not ashamed to let the light of God's truth shine brightly, no matter the cost. He was a bold man of God, just proclaiming the truth in a dark culture, come what may. And we need more people like that today. John Calvin commented on John the Baptist in this passage saying, quote, We behold in John an illustrious example of that moral courage, which all pious teachers ought to possess, not to hesitate to incur the wrath of the great and powerful, as often as it may be found necessary. For he with whom there is acceptance of persons does not honestly serve God, end quote. John cared more about honoring God than, than winning the acceptance or the praise or the approval of man. And we, we wonder where such men of courage have gone. And I hope they're being bred in this room. Now, John the Baptist was one such man. So was Jesus. But that very fact might strike you as odd because in this passage, it kind of looks like Jesus is fleeing, right? Look at verse 12 again. <clears throat> it says, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Kind of sounds like he's moving away to avoid trouble. The same word for withdraw was used of the Magi, that they withdrew back into their home country by another way to avoid the wrath of Herod the Great. So is that, is that what Jesus is doing here? Is he fleeing to avoid the wrath of Herod? The answer to that is no. And I'll explain. <clears throat> it is true that Jesus is strategically withdrawing here. He is moving his ministry to another location. It's very true. But he's not running from Herod and Tippus. If that were the case, it would make no sense to move to Galilee because Herod was the ruler over Galilee as well. And where Jesus ends up, Capernaum, is just seven miles away from Herod's capital city. So if you're running from Herod, it's not the best place to go. No, rather, the main reason Jesus departs from Judea in the south and moves to Galilee in the north was to avoid a premature conflict with the scribes and Pharisees. And I'll make this up. This is, comes from the parallel in John chapter 4. John 4 tells us, it says, When the Lord knew... 
that the Pharisees had heard Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, it says he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. So here's what's going on. The scribes, the Pharisees, the other religious leaders, they had already come to hate John the Baptist. For the same reason Herod hated John the Baptist. He was righteous. They weren't. They were phonies. All these religious leaders were, were phonies. They were not men of God. They did not have a heart for God. And John let them know it. We already saw back in Matthew 3, 7, where John rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees. When they come to him for baptism, he sends them away. He calls them a brood of vipers. Not a very seeker-friendly message. But they needed to repent. And John was a man of courage. But they didn't like the fact that this supposed prophet was rejecting them. I mean, they're not sinners like these ordinary people. Doesn't John know who they are? But he didn't budge. So the religious elite headquartered in Jerusalem hated John the Baptist. But like Herod, they too were afraid to publicly speak out against him because he was so popular. But when John was finally arrested by Herod, they all rejoiced. They were very happy. They breathed a sigh of relief that this thorn in their side was finally out of the way. But that relief was only momentary because it had become known to them that another pesky prophet was arising and he was actually making more disciples than John. His name was Jesus. And this Jesus figure seemed pretty much just as unfavorable to them as John. Jesus was already gaining some opposition at this point. And this is why one of their own, Nicodemus, he only felt safe to visit Jesus under the cover of night. All this goes to say the real reason Jesus withdrew to Galilee was to escape the pressure of the religious leaders. John had been the focus of all their opposition. But now that John was gone, they would immediately set their sights on Jesus. And what's the problem with this? There's only one problem with this, namely that his time had not come. It wasn't the time. Don't misunderstand me. Jesus is not withdrawing because he's afraid. We will learn many times Jesus does not suffer from the fear of man. Jesus himself is entirely fearless because, simply because he fully trusted in the will of his father. He had no fear. <clears throat> Jesus does not fear the civil authorities He will stare down Herod and Pontius Pilate. He won't even flinch when the time comes. And Jesus does not fear the religious authorities. He will rebuke them and condemn them 10 times harsher than John the Baptist. You just read Matthew 23 where Jesus calls them sons of hell. Jesus will face them. He will bear all their opposition. He will even let them kill him. But again, When the time comes, and that time is not now. That time had not come. You see, Jesus was on a divine timetable. He knew his father's will. His father had an appointed hour for him to go to the cross. But that hour was still, you know, several years away. There's still a lot of work to be done. And until that appointed hour came, Jesus knew it was the father's will for him to avoid premature conflict. I mean, should Jesus have stayed in Judea after John's arrest, 
Humanly speaking, they, they probably would have killed him before the time. But that couldn't be. It's not the Father's will. Jesus had more work to do. And he knew it was time to go. John the Baptist, he was the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets. It's kind of like a bright morning star. It's the last star you see before the sunrise. It's the last star that fades away right before the sunrise. And, and John played his part. He was announcing the sunrise, the coming of the Son of God. And once the sun rises, all the other stars fade away. Because their, their glory, their brightness just doesn't even compare to the glory of the sun. And so it was with the coming of Jesus. He's not just, just a prophet. He was the very son of God. And John's arrest signaled a change. John's arrest was like when that bright morning star fades away entirely. You can't see it anymore. When that happens, you know that the sun is just about to rise. The light of Jesus has has already been on display for about a year, but it's kind of like that pre-dawn light. It, It doesn't quite get everyone's attention. But that is about to change. The work of the forerunner is over. John has finished his course. It's time now for Jesus to take center stage, for his light to shine brightly all by itself in the world stage. And just like Christ himself says at this moment in the parallel passage of Mark 115, he says the time is fulfilled, meaning that it's time for his light to dawn upon the world in full force. And this sunrise is going to take place first, not in Jerusalem and not in Judea, but of all places in Galilee. And that brings us to our second point, the second mark of the divine ordering of Christ's ministry. Secondly, it started in just the right place. It started at just the right time. It started in just the right place. Christ's move to Galilee was not accidental. It was not coincidental. It was not incidental. It was rather intentional. That Jesus would begin his preaching ministry here for a reason. This was foreordained. This was purposed long ago. We already get a taste of this in John's gospel You don't have to turn there, I'll summarize. We read a little bit of it this morning in scripture reading, John chapter 4, which tells us at the same moment Jesus is leaving Judea in the south, he's going to Galilee in the north, and John 4, it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. It says he had to pass through Samaria. Now, technically, that's not quite true. He didn't have to, in one sense, pass through Samaria because there were three routes That went from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north. Only one of them went right up the middle through Samaria. And even though it was the most direct, Jews would never take that route because it went straight through Samaritan territory. And they hated the Samaritans. They were half-breed Jews. They would never pass through Samaritan territory. But Jesus did. He, in another sense, he had to pass through Samaria. And that's because on, even on his way to Galilee, he knew he had some divine appointments to make. One of those divine appointments included a, a meeting with a woman at a well. 
And indeed, it would be this woman and later an entire Samaritan village who would be among the first to receive the gospel and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They all believed. But after that, he passes through Samaria. He ends up in Galilee. And where does he go? Well, verse 13 tells us what happened. Verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Verse 13, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. All right, so coming from Judea in the south, verse 13 says, he then left Nazareth, which obviously implies he first went to Nazareth. That was his first stop. That makes perfect sense because that was his hometown. That's his childhood, young adulthood hometown. This is confirmed in Luke's gospel. Jesus first stopped in Nazareth. But that did not go so well. And I will just summarize for you Luke chapter 4. See how it's useful, by the way, to compare the gospel accounts. You get the full picture in God's providence. He did this. It's amazing to see, but Luke 4 tells us what happens. Jesus comes back to his hometown. He's been gone for a little while. Comes Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue, which was his custom. But this time, he does the scripture reading. He gets up. He reads a passage from Isaiah. It's a, it's a big messianic prophecy. And he says, hey, this day, this reading has been fulfilled in your presence. Basically saying, like, I am the fulfillment of this passage. And they don't buy it. That they're not believing in him. Like, wait, you're just Joseph's son. Like, who do you think you are? Jesus then started challenging them with his teaching. And keep in mind, Jesus, not that long ago, just witnessed an entire village of Samaritans readily believe in him and readily accept that he was the Messiah. Now he's back in his own hometown and they're not believing. And so Jesus reminds them, from the Old Testament, how you know, more than a few times God's favor passed over the Jews because of their unbelief and instead landed on the Gentiles. And upon hearing this, they just explode. That, that, that's outrageous to think that God would favor the Gentiles over the Jews to them was blasphemous. So Luke 4.28 says this right after, It says, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him up to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Do you get that? They were about to kill him. Their self-righteousness was so offended by him that they just wanted to silence him just like they did to all the prophets. And they would have succeeded if it were the appointed time. But this was not the appointed time. So Luke merely says in Luke 4.30, it says, but passing through their midst, he went his way. I'd love to see that. Was that miraculous? Was that not miraculous? We don't know. We don't know. But we do know if it wasn't the appointed hour, no harm would befall Jesus. This was not his time. But like Jesus said before, no prophet is without honor, except in his hometown. 
And this would provide the occasion for Jesus to leave Nazareth for good as his base of operations. This is, he's, he's no longer basing his ministry out of Nazareth. But you know what? That's not such a bad thing because Nazareth is a terrible location to launch a regional ministry. Now, God had other plans for him. And look, this is how God works. In his perfect providence, that Christ's rejection at Nazareth was just another catalyst forcing him to move right where God wanted him to relocate one more time. And this time, Jesus would choose a new headquarters for his ministry. Verse 13 tells us it was where? Capernaum, the city of Capernaum. Capernaum, which means the village of Nahum, was located on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. We'll learn a lot more about it next week, but it became the fishing headquarters for Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Jesus had visited Capernaum many times. This is a very sensible location for him to set up shop. And going to Capernaum was strategic as well. This was a bustling city in the region. It was on a major trade route, a lot of commerce, a lot of traffic went through Capernaum. Dozens of other towns you could quickly reach by boat on the Sea of Galilee. And it's long been said, quote, that Judea is on the way to nowhere, but Galilee is on the way to everywhere, end quote. So this would be a perfect base of operations for Jesus to reach this whole region. But Christ's choice of Capernaum was not just strategic, it was also prophetic. And this just goes to show you further how God the Father is just sovereignly ordaining all the steps Jesus would take in his ministry. And proof comes in fulfillment of prophecy. And that's what we get. Matthew characteristically clues us in here. Look at verse 14. Matthew tells us, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Here's yet another reference to Isaiah, the great prophet, who although he wrote about 700 years before Jesus, had so much to say about the Messiah, and Jesus came to literally fulfill prophecy after prophecy after prophecy from Isaiah. We already saw that with the virgin birth. It continues here. Speaking of the birth of the Messiah, though, this prophecy is in connection with the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 7 through 9, they all go together. And it speaks of, of a promised son who will deliver God's people. You're probably familiar with Isaiah 9, 6, which we read a lot around Christmas time. It says, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. You know that. But that prophecy, that text begins in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, which says this. It says, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea 
on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Even back in Isaiah's day, the region of Galilee was known as a Gentile region. That's because in Isaiah's time, northern Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. They were deported and the land was repopulated by by Gentiles. And even before that, this whole region was originally given to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. But they were never faithful in their mission to drive out the Canaanites. They let them stay. They intermarried. And over the years, they came under a, a pagan and a foreign influence early on. This is why it's always, or long has been known as Galilee of the Gentiles. And this is part of the reason God, God laid them low. And so we see in Matthew, these people are pictured as sitting in darkness. And this shows their fixed position that they're, they're not getting out of this darkness. They habitually reside in spiritual darkness. And because of this, it says the shadow of death was over them. The light of God was eclipsed by their sin. All they knew was the shadow of death. And this just speaks to their their condition of hopelessness. Death was their master. It threatened to come for them at any moment. And being without the light, when death comes, it, it would only usher them into outer darkness. And so it goes for all who've exchanged the glory of God for a lie and and snuffed out the lights of creation and conscience God has given to all. But here in Matthew 4, in this instance, among these Galileans, the light of God's grace was determined to break through the darkness and the time of God's chosen servant had come. The sun was going to rise And first of all, in all places in Galilee of the Gentiles. Why do you think this is happening? What do you think this communicates? It's not an accident. This was prophesied 700 years before. So it's clearly not accidental. God's in charge here. But why does this matter so much? What is this communicating? I mean, certainly this was unexpected by the elites. They all believe that whenever the Messiah came, I mean, of course, he would reside in Jerusalem, the capital city, right? That's the temple. And the religious leaders will later share their prejudice when they will say, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? John seven forty one. Search and see that no prophet arises in Galilee, John seven fifty two. I mean, to them, the whole northern region of Galilee was defiled by those Gentiles and just just cut off to them. But not to God. And God's choice of Galilee as the place for his son to first rise was meant to communicate and reflect his own heart. And first, this shows that God's heart has always been for all the nations. I mean, in one sense, it's odd that Matthew alone records this prophecy and its fulfillment Because his is a gospel intended for a Jewish audience. But he wants them to likewise know that the good news of Jesus Christ is not only meant for the house of Israel, but for all the nations. And it's that same good news, Matthew ends, that we are to take to all the nations. Jesus is the king of the Jews. 
but he's also the king of kings. It's just like that Samaritan village testified of him earlier when they said, we have heard for ourselves and we know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. In addition, God centralizing Christ's ministry in Galilee instead of Jerusalem reflects God's opposition to the proud. God's opposed to the proud. He gives his grace to the humble. The proud, the haughty, the arrogant, the ones who convince themselves that they're healthy when they're still sick, they find only God's justice. And that, that described the religious leaders in Jerusalem in this day. That they didn't really know God. They didn't really need God. They were only concerned for their own power. But like Jesus said in Mark 2.17, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The self-righteous had no need of Jesus, or at least they were unwilling to admit their need of Jesus. And so Jesus was going to take his healing light to those who would receive it, to the humble and the brokenhearted. God's grace finds the humble, the meek, the mild. The ones who, they already know just how spiritually sick and dead they are. Now look, not all of these Galileans would believe in Jesus and not all in Capernaum would believe in Jesus. But there were many people in this region who were spiritually humble. They were desperate to be set free from sin and death. And the light of Jesus would make them free. In all, we find that there's no accidents here. There's no coincidences. God is divinely ordering his son's ministry. And because of that, it started at just the right uh, time. It started in just the right place. And finally, number three, it started with just the right message. It started with just the right message. Now to verse 17. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice the time element here. It says, from that time, a corner has been turned in the life of Jesus. It's time for his light to dawn in full. And this marks, like I said before, the formal beginning to his preaching ministry. And what follows is going to be a whirlwind couple of years. We'll see that throughout Matthew's gospel. But the essence of that ministry starts here in kernel form. And what is the essence of that ministry? It's preaching. It's preaching. He began to preach. We think of the mercy ministry of Jesus often, his healing. He saw the sick and the blind and the destitute. And he was moved to genuine compassion for them. And he healed them in mercy. And that was huge. But that was not his greater ministry. I mean, do you realize that all those people Jesus healed, they all eventually got sick again and died. But even his healing signs were meant to authenticate him as the Messiah so that people might listen to them because the real healing, the eternal healing came from his words, his words of life, the means of salvation God placed the means of healing the soul and believing a message preached. And the God-ordained 
method of delivering the words of life is preaching. And so Jesus began to preach, Caruso, to herald, to proclaim, to declare. Jesus came to let the light of God's word shine fully in the darkness. It's like he said elsewhere when he was preaching, John 8, 12. He said, I am the light of the, <clears throat> of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And here, this is where Jesus very much on purpose took over John the Baptist's main message, which was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom has drawn near in the presence of the king. After the cross, the expression of God's rule over his creation will, will take a huge leap forward. Until then, what people needed to do to prepare their hearts was to repent, to turn back from a course of sin and self. Just like John said, Jesus was now calling the people to turn away from living for self and to return to their God, to realign their hearts to God as their creator, to get back on the narrow path of seeking him alone, that they might inherit the Messiah's salvation when it comes. And look, this call to repent is still the first demand of the gospel today. The call to repent is still the first demand of the gospel today. The the good news of Jesus is wrapped up, not just in his life or birth, his ministry. It's ultimately wrapped up in his death, his life-giving death. And the prophet Isaiah also happened to foresee what the Messiah's death would accomplish for us. In, for example, Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, which says of the Messiah, when he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, uh, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to be our sin bearer because in reality, all mankind was sitting in darkness. There's there's none righteous, not even one. All were lost, but that's why God sent his son, a savior, light of the world, to save, to redeem to forgive, to justify, that we might be free from the shadow of death and might even know eternal life, which comes by faith in this Christ. You must receive him and trust in him to be saved. However, before you can turn to Jesus, you have to turn away from whatever else you were living for. Before you can lay hold of Jesus by faith, you've got to drop whatever else you were clinging to. That's repentance. It's not just saying sorry for your sin. It is forsaking your sin. It is hating your sin. It's coming to the realization your sin is killing you. It's robbing you of joy and life. It's seeing it for what it is like a snake and you would just cast it down away from you and run away from it then you're ready to run to this Christ by faith to save you. And God promises to always receive those who run to him with a repentant faith. 
like Isaiah would say later in Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, where he says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord for he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. This is what all must do. But you can't delay because the previous verse in Isaiah says this, 55, 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Which means the day of salvation is today. Scripture always says there's an appointed day for your salvation. And that day is always today. Which simply means tomorrow's not guaranteed. You have no idea whether tomorrow, whether or not tomorrow God will demand your life and then demand you give an account for your sin. And when that day comes, if you're without Christ, you'll only find judgment. You won't find light. You'll find outer darkness. And so you need to make your soul right with God today. And you do that by faith in Christ alone. And there might even be some here this morning who've never heard this. You've never done this. And if that's you, I would just pray that you don't respond to Jesus like the people in his hometown. You don't run him off. You don't silence him. You don't do away with him. There are no accidents to God. There are no coincidences. And that includes your presence here this morning. Why are you here? What brought you here to this church this morning? Whether you will acknowledge it or not, God had a divine appointment for you, ordained for you to hear the gospel. And I just pray It's for the softening of your heart to the things of the Lord, not the hardening of your heart. But humble yourself. See your sin. Go to him. He will never turn you away. He will abundantly pardon and save and give you life and freedom from the shadow of death. You must believe today. Just like Jesus said, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Now, there might be others who've heard this all before. And you say you believe it, but, but like that religious hypocrite, the truth doesn't have your life, doesn't have your soul. It's not changed your life. It's just like 1 John 1, 5 and 6. It says, God is light and in him, there's no darkness at all. But there are some who, who make a claim. They claim to have fellowship with this God who is light. Meanwhile, however, it says they're still walking in the darkness. They're still leading a life of unrepentant sin that they hide from others. And so 1 John 1, 6 would say, if that's you, you're a liar. You're lying in your claim to have fellowship with this God who is light. Because you're in the darkness. You don't really have fellowship with this God. You're not saved. And what you need to do likewise is repent. Where you can't truly lay hold of Jesus if you're still cherishing your life of sin. And don't get me wrong. All of us Christians, we all still sin. We all still stumble back into the darkness. But the one who has come to see the light hates his sin, repents continually, and is always running back to the light and struggling to stay in the light. We're talking about the one, though, who who claims the name of Jesus, but that they just live in the darkness, that they're still residing fully in the darkness. No repentance, no shame. John would say, and Jesus would say that that person is just a phony. You can't follow Jesus as Lord when you're still Lord of your life. 
when you're still living for your will, when you're governed by your lusts and your passions. And you can pay lip service to Jesus all you want. You can call him Lord all you want. But your life will show if you've truly bowed the knee to him as your sovereign, your king, if you've submitted your will to him or not. And if this describes you, well, likewise, repent, flee the darkness, humble yourself and run to the light. He will likewise freely forgive and abundantly pardon, but you must repent just like Jesus preached. But it's a fitting reminder for all of us. And part of the reason Jesus saved us was so that we would then follow him in the light and then testify of that light. You can't do that if you're living in the darkness. Your your witness is effectively zero. Look, we know that the light of the Son of God, it rose in his day, it peaked, and then it set. And when Jesus was crucified, the light went out and darkness fell upon the land. But the good news is he rose again and his light shines forevermore. But Jesus, he ascended into heaven. He cannot be seen today. That does not mean his light is not shining. And that does not mean Jesus cannot be seen. The reason people can't see Jesus today is simply because they're blind. Scripture says that Satan and sin have spiritually blinded all people. But they're not without hope. This is why the Lord Jesus, in his plan, after he ascended, he placed his light, so to speak, in his word and even in his people that the light might still shine over this world. So what you need to get is that the ministry of Jesus on earth isn't over. In our text this morning, we, we, saw, we merely saw the divinely ordered beginning of that ministry. How it begins. Where does it end? It hasn't ended. It's still going on. And Jesus now, as we'll find in the last verse of Matthew, he commissions us to carry on that work. Not salvifically. We're not dying for anyone's sins. He's the only atoning sacrifice. But we are called to be his witnesses, to testify of his light. And God has given us the light of the glory of God in Christ and in his gospel. And you're now called to, for you to walk in the light, to live it out before the world, and to preach it. You're to carry on Christ's ministry in a real sense. You are now the, the instruments in his hands. The Apostle Peter reminds us of this, 1 Peter 2.9, where he says, You are our chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And he says, so that, why has God chosen you and called you? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Some of the main reasons you've been called and left on this planet to bear witness, to be a light bearer to a dark, dark world. This is a needed reminder for all of us that if you're in Christ and you're still alive in this world, you have a ministry. We're not meant to be spectators or observers, just reading the Bible, learning about the life of Christ. That's needed. But we are to be disciples who, when we leave, we, we, we follow him, which means we do what he did. And the time is now for you to let the light of the gospel shine 
before others. You do that with your works. You do that with your words. You know, the darkness that was over the land of Galilee, it didn't stop at the border. It went the world over, and it still does. We know that in our own land of America, our own state of California, it seems to be taking more and more of a turn into extreme darkness. It's really nothing new, but most people's natural instinct is just to flee, you know, run away, seek comfort, find safety, find security. It's, it's not safe. It's too dark here. But listen, for one, nowhere's safe. Sin is a global problem. It's going to reach everywhere pretty soon. But more importantly, guard your heart from letting such fear blind you to opportunity. I'll say that again. Guard your heart from letting such fear blind you to opportunity. We have a mission. It doesn't change. It's to shine as lights in the darkness, spreading the gospel. And I'm pretty sure the darker it gets, that just means there's a greater opportunity for the light to shine brighter. Uh, brighter. Pretty sure that's how light and dark work. And it, all this means is we are being presented with one of the greatest opportunities to minister in all of our country's history. Think about that. That's true. And in another sense, you could say it's, it's a great time to be alive. It's a great place for us to be. Because that means we likely get to behold God do some fearful and wonderful things in our age. But he will only do so through those who are faithful. Who let their light shine. Who preach the gospel without shame, without fear. So heed this exhortation this morning. Remember that you have a ministry as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I know this isn't popular and it can be very scary. John 3.20, Jesus reminded us that everyone who does evil hates the light. They don't come near to the light for fear that their evil deeds will be exposed. So if you do all this, if you live actually as a disciple of Christ when you leave these four walls, I mean, some people are going to hate you for it. You might lose a friend or two. You might lose a job or two. You might even end up like John the Baptist in jail or worse. Your faith will be tested. But you just need to know that your Lord Jesus is right now interceding for you, praying for you in heaven, like he says, praying that your faith will not fail. He came and lived and died first for you. And now it's your turn to be faithful to him. And so I pray you take heart these words, which we will see very soon in Matthew, Matthew 5, 14 through 16, where Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And he says in verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Why don't you pray with me? Our Father who is in heaven, we do pray, hallowed be your name. As we sang this morning, yours is the name of all names, above all names, the name which you shared with your, your glorious Son, the light of the world, who has come and risen over this world, and his, his light has pierced through the darkness of this land, as all of us, uh, once lived in that darkness, in the rebellion of our own sins, uh, turning away from you. 
how would we ever do such a thing to turn away from our perfect and good and gracious God? But such was the deceitfulness of our own sin and, and the work of the devil. We thank you for your grace in this Christ, this Messiah long ago promised who has come, who has fulfilled your, your plan for his life. His work is now finished where he came, his ministry began, his atoning work ended, and, and it is finished. We now get to, to revel in that. But in another sense, Lord, this work is not over. We thank you for the finished work of Christ. Salvation is finished and accomplished, yet you call us to serve you as your instruments in, in the, the expression, the, the application, the uh, announcing of that work. And so I pray, Lord, you help us to be faithful to it. The darkness confronts us with fear. We, we fear for self-preservation. In a sense, it's natural, but I, I pray we fear you more and, to, and love the lost more that we would, like John, like Jesus, boldly testify of the truth, come what may, in our world, in our country, in our state. Give us that boldness to, to just let the light shine. For any here this morning who've not seen that light, open their eyes, Lord. Let the scales fall from their eyes that they would themselves be reconciled to you and turn into a light bearer. It's the only hope in this lost and dying world. There's really nothing else. We know this. But we thank you. We exalt you. And I pray now as we leave that we don't leave unchanged. We don't put our light under a basket throughout the week, but we, we truly aim to let it shine. Empower us by your spirit to let the light of Christ shine through us in word and in works. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.